1: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. I am Gabrielle Ha Cohen.
2: Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, and I am grafted into the one root of Judaism.
1: I don't know what that means, but I think that I'm going to have a problem with it later. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain it to you.
1: Okay, um, because we are here to talk about Sadie's life in the Independent Fundamental Baptist cult. Well, not today. We're not really, but. Um, we are here to educate and inform listeners about this cult and to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion.
2: Yeah, today we're going to talk about cult stuff, but also just uh, just interesting religious stuff.
1: This is, this is going to be a fun episode because there's a little bit of a role reversal where usually I ask Sadie a bunch of questions and then I make grand proclamations about them, whereas this is going to be the other way around. Or I'm going to say a bunch of stuff and then Sadie's going to contextualize it, but that's fine.
2: Yeah, it's going to be fun.
1: So before we get into all of that, I would just like to say to our listeners that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully viewer supported podcast. So if you enjoy this content, you can subscribe to our Patreon where we have bonus content, including um, very extended show outtakes. So a lot of, of outtakes from the show on there. Um but if you don't want to join the Patreon for whatever reason, you can support us in other ways, like recommending this podcast to your family, your friends, your coworkers. And we are trying to grow our audience, raise awareness about this issue, uh, about this cult, and the real danger that the IFB and other cult groups pro- uh, present to society as a whole. So, um, The third thing that you can do, maybe if you like other podcasts, is that maybe suggest to those podcast hosts, send them an email, send them an Instagram DM, Twitter DM. Hey, you guys should get the hosts from Leaving Eden podcast on your podcast. They would be great guests. They're interesting. Um, I think we're interesting. I think you're more interesting than I am, but that's all right.
2: I think we're fantastic guests.
1: I think we are too. When we went on Permanent Waves, we did a great job. Shout out to Ray from Permanent Waves and Ben from Permanent Waves. Uh, for Hi, permanent us waves. On their show, hey permanent waves, you, you guys, guys are, are great. great. <laughs> um, jinx, yeah, yeah. So, uh, 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 the other thing that you can do is you can go and you can join our Facebook group, it's called Eden Exodus.
2: Um, I don't think we've mentioned this on the show before, but since I'm friends with you and since you mention things that I then go Google and do more research on, uh, my targeted ads on Facebook and Instagram think I'm Jewish. Like for real? Um, so I think you're
1: planning a Jewish wedding.
2: Yeah, they think I'm planning a Jewish wedding. Uh, they think they they think I'm Jewish and heavily into subscription boxes because they wanted to send me like like an apples and honey subscription box.
1: Oh, for Rosh Hashanah.
2: Yeah. So uh, and they think I'm planning a Jewish wedding and all sorts of stuff. But I also get a lot of ads uh, for these birthright trips. But since I am absolutely not Jewish, if I wanted to take a trip to Israel, I would have to pay for it myself because I would because I would love to go and totally intend on doing that one day.
1: Yeah. I mean, I preface this by saying I would not begrudge any Christians who feel who felt like they wanted to visit Israel. And like, in fact, I would say that, like, if you feel like a spiritual connection to this place, for whatever reason, I'd highly recommend that you do it to, to visit if you have that opportunity or like, if you're just interested in history and you're not religious, it's a fascinating place. Like, it's full of ancient ruins that are remarkably like well preserved, and there's like all sorts of beautiful like old buildings, like like ancient old buildings, and like there's a lot of like cool Islamic arch- architecture as well. Like, for example, um, in Jerusalem, if you go and look at like the Dome of the Rock or like the Al Aqsa Mosque, um, like the tile work in those buildings is breathtaking absolutely beautiful. And I know like, but I know a lot of Christians and evangelicals especially do go to visit Israel. And I know this because they will often tell me that they have visited Israel immediately after finding out that I am
2: Jewish. Okay. So wait, wait. So it's literally like you're Jewish. Oh, that's cool. I went to Israel in 2017. It was super awesome.
1: It's so it's more along the lines of like, Oh, you're Jewish. What do you think of the situation in Israel right now? I went there X number of years ago, right after X conflict. I just want you to let you know that I pray for Israel every day. Have you ever read what Mark Twain said about the Jews?
2: Okay, so I have <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I had definitely met that kind of person. And the uh the pray for Israel every day, that's something that that I've heard in the evangelical world quite a bit.
1: In my like when I hear somebody say that they quote unquote pray for israel every day what i take from that is not that they are per se like praying for israel to be a a prosperous nation that is a nice place to live or that the uh, the conflict going on there that is like the only thing that people really know about that place that that will have a peaceful and and uh uh uh, auspicious resolution that will be agreeable to almost all parties because like remember what we talked about last episode with when we were talking about sarah like what these people believe a lot of them believe is that arabs are actually the source of all of the conflict in the world and that they are the biggest barrier to peace and so what they're actually praying for when they're saying like oh i pray for israel every day is for some sort of like ethnic cleansing-esque situation in which like all of the Palestinians and all of the Arabs are removed from the land and so that it can be a 100% peaceful Jewish state. And then something to do with that is a precursor to the book of revelations happening and then the rapture. And then like we talked about. So when a Christian says to me, I pray for Israel every day because I know what they actually mean by that
2: does that does that go over well? I mean, yeah I mean, if somebody says like
1: comes up they know one thing about me and they come up and try to talk about that thing like to me like trying to you know like if they only know one thing about me, they're like, that's the one thing that I know about you, and I'm going to talk to you about what my preconceived notions about what your opinions about this might be to try to endear myself to you without actually asking you any questions about yourself other than that like you know I mean, that's the sort of situation where I'm just like, well, I don't really want to have this person around me so maybe I'll say something that will put them off a little bit so they won't want to talk to me or
2: you know that totally makes sense and and I do hear the pray the phrase um pray for the peace of Jerusalem I think that's from one of the psalms um but I think I think you're you're not wrong that a lot of people that are praying that prayer are praying for the kind of peace that comes with you know eradicating everybody except for Jews in that area <laughs>
1: Yeah, and the Christians can come to and maybe then convert all the Jews to Christianity. Oh, no. And then, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but like, when you think about like, Jerusalem doesn't really need anybody to pray for priests for it. Um, This is just my opinion, because like what Jerusalem's, a, a I mean, generally a pretty safe and peaceful city. Like, and so that's a population probably about 200,000 more people than Portland, Oregon but they have less instances of crime, less instances of like violent crime. So maybe people should be praying for peace in Portland instead, because although Portland is like one of the safest major cities in the country, although if these people were also saying like they were praying for peace in Portland, um, knowing them, they would also be like praying for some sort of like brutal assault on the rights of the people here. um, And that like all of the anti-police demonstration, the demonstrators that are, going on here um, that they would all be like shot or arrested or something like that. Yeah.
2: But no, I, I don't think if I heard somebody say, Oh, I'm praying for peace in Portland. Uh, I would like to believe that what they meant was You know, I'm praying for that ballot measure to pass so that the police have more oversight. Right. And if somebody who says that they pray for peace in Israel or pray for peace in Jerusalem, they might really be talking about, you know, a lasting peace built on mutual respect. But you don't know that. So you feel like if you meet a Christian, they're like, oh, I love Israel so much uh, and or try to just convert you just like on the spot. That seems to be like like your experience with Christians.
1: Like around here, around in like Portland, um, Northwest, is like most of the Christians that you meet here are not particularly like the proselytizing type. They'll just be regular people and then they'll like be like regular people that like go to church or something. It's really more of just a vocal minority that make it seem like Christians just can't hold it together <laughs> around Jews. They just can't. That like usually like one of three things happens. So the first is that like they like they go on about like I love Israel. Aren't Muslims and Arabs the worst? I wish they'd get out of the way, am I right? Like you know like you were saying where they're like I pray for Israel every day. That's basically what they're saying. They're like man, I wish those Muslims would just, you know, take a hike. Like <laughs> which, <Okay. laughs> you know, not great. The second thing And I've talked about this before. Is that they'll ask me if I've like, have you heard the good, or they'll have you heard the good news? You know, that's when they're like being, you know, they're really going for it. Or like if they're maybe trying to be a bit more subtle about it, they'll be like, "What do you think about Jesus?" So,
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, but I mean, there's uh, outside of our podcast, there's very little reason for JC to cross your mind. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so the third thing that they'll do, and I think that this is the most interesting and weird, and also like a little comical, is that they will act almost as if I am a figure to be revered, like as if I am somehow a person who needs to be protected and fawned over, and like had every need catered
2: to. See, that seems like this seems so awkward. Is this like a uh, because you're one of the chosen people thing?
1: Yeah, like, what's the verse in Genesis, right? It says, like, something like, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you. Yeah.
2: I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed.
1: Is that, uh, so...
2: That's the, yeah, and yes, I do know that off the top of my head. (laughs) And yes, I didn't realize I did until it started coming out of my mouth. Apologize.
1: Like, my existence is an opportunity for them to enact really weird superstitions about that. Oh, I see. It's, I mean, it's never about making me feel happy or comfortable or anything like that. It's always just some sort of like weird performative, like to show, like on their part, to show to God that they are pumping as much kindness and blessing into one of Israel's descendants that they can so that they can like maximize their own blessings, like their heavenly ROI.
2: Yeah. So that. <laughs> I I mean, that sounds, that just sounds awkward.
1: Oh, it's, I mean, it's, it's awkward, but like, then, like, every time it happens, it's just like, oh, this, this again. Like, it's kind of funny.
2: And, and yeah, that verse is, it's the Abrahamic covenant. It's, I don't know, at least that's what we call it. Um, But dude, I can tell you from, from someone who was formerly on the inside of evangelical Christianity, the views on Israel and on Jewish people as a whole. It can be kind of weird.
1: I mean, I think like I think it's funny though that this applies to Jews, but that it doesn't apply to Arabs, right? Because Arabs are supposed to be like all supposed to be Ishmaelites, right? Yeah, and Ishmael is Abraham's firstborn son to the to uh, uh, his wife's slave Hagar. And therefore, all of the Arabs, all of the Ishmaelites are descended from Abraham. Apparently, they aren't worthy of this blessing, which is kind of weird, but.
2: Well, I don't think they got a blessing. They got a promise. So Ishmael didn't get a blessing the way that Isaac did. He got a promise that he would be a great nation.
1: God never blessed white, like the, the white people. They're like, oh, you guys are going to be a great nation. Did he? Uh... Is there a blessing for the Romans?
2: Well, I think that would go back to the second episode that we ever did where we talked about Ham Shem and Japheth.
1: Oh, right. Where you guys are like, well, technically we're from this this uh
2: Yeah, uh, you remember that? Okay, I do. but but keep keep in mind the Abrahamic covenant, which we were just talking about, which is the blessing that passes through Abraham To Isaac specifically, that is actually going to come up back on on the back end of this episode. So keep that in mind. So I knew someone in the cult who bragged incessantly about having had a Jewish friend in college. Because apparently, so this is a guy. (laughs) So apparently there was a Jewish dude who went to Hiles Anderson. And apparently they were such good friends that the guy even told them what tribe he was from. I
1: find this both hilarious and interesting, a hilarious that a Jewish person would decide to go to Hiles Anderson Bible college for whatever reason. Second, (laughs) because like, like what? So second, like for a lot of Jewish people, like they don't know what tribe they're from. Like, okay. So
2: what we're talking about is the, the book of Genesis, Jacob, who later had his name changed to Israel has 12 sons. Andrew Lloyd Webber did a musical about it. That's pretty fun, and now I have that stuck in my head. Jacob, Jacob and Sons. Anyway, um, the twelve. I don't sons, know that one, but okay. It's a Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Well, so the twelve sons of Jacob, one of them being Joseph, they all they each go on to father a line of their own descendants, and then well, that's what people are talking about when they say that the twelve tribes of Israel it's those 12 sons and like each one of those sons and his descendants become their own tribe, but they're all descendants of Israel. So that's the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel.
1: Yeah. Israel was a person whose name was Jacob. Also, his name was Israel.
2: Yes. And he wrestled with an angel and got his hip thrown out of joint and he had two wives. He's a pretty, He's an interesting story. I'm sorry.
1: Two wives and two concubines and they're, wives were sisters. Anyway, um
2: Sorry, I'm sorry. That was off track, but I th- I think he has a cool story.
1: Like for a lot of Jewish people, so like when they say, "Oh, I'm from this tribe, I'm from that tribe," like which we don't really say. Like we don't really talk about that. Like oh, like over the centuries anyway, like over 1000 literally thousands of years ago, this is what it's it's all talking about. Like these families all got mixed up with each other, especially like within the Jewish diaspora. S- and since so many family names had changed over the years. Like, if, I mean, for instance, there, there was like laws in different countries in Europe. Like, for instance, in Germany, they would have laws that said, okay, well, like the Jewish people have to take like German last names. So like a lot of these people, like a lot of these family names over the years were lost. If
2: you do know, if you do happen to know like what tribe or what what two tribes your family comes from. So, it, uh, is it not some kind of big, intimate secret that you'd only tell a best friend?
1: Oh. No. Okay. I mean, like, for, like, for instance, um, so, my Hebrew name, like, right, my, my Hebrew name is Gabriel Hakohen. That's, like, not my the name that it says on my birth certificate, because... But, like, when I do public stuff, when I do music stuff, when I do this podcast thing, I, I go by my Hebrew name, which is Gabriel Cohen. If you meet somebody whose last name is Cohen or whose last name is Khan, or there's other variations like cats, catsmen. They're it, like, so it means that their ancestors were the priests in the temples and the priests were all descended supposedly from Aaron, the prophet, the brother of Moses and Aaron and Moses were from the tribe of Levi. So in fact, like names like Levi, Levitz, Levinson, Levine. So those are all like surnames that you would hear from like the tribe of Levy. So the same like goes, if you met somebody whose last name was Manashi, that would be somebody from the tribe of Manasseh or, or like, so like the kosher wine Manashevitz, like that was started by a guy who's, who's like whose last name, his family name was Manashevitz. And so like in, in like in Slavic languages, that would mean son of Manasseh. So same with like, if you met somebody whose name was Rubenstein, then they would probably be from the tribe of Ruben. So it's like not some crazy secret.
2: So it's not like this guy is like, I must be his best friend because he like took me in a dark corner and whispered what tribe he's from. No,
1: no, okay. no, 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 no not, not at all. Like, um,
2: cause I was totally, I was taken, taken aback a little bit the first time. That's weird, the first time yeah. you were like oh yeah you know well you, here's my last name. it's probably this tribe and i was like what you what we're not that close like what are what what are you doing <laughs> like how friendly do you think we are dude
1: like you you legitimately thought that that's like a deep dark secret that we don't t- like no well, i mean
2: it, it occurred to me because like i know you as a person that like i can contextualize like oh that's not like the body language and like the the way that he's behaving right now. So clearly my perception is off, you know, because here's a, here's a, here's a real fun thing. My knowledge of you as a person trumps the stereotypes that I have in my mind.
1: Hey, there you go. There you go.
2: Because like, like me knowing you as a friend and as a person, like that comes first.
1: You're able to, to look at people as individuals, not just uh, 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 an amalgamation of attributes, which is a, right. a, a nice thing.
2: But it did like take me a minute. I was like, oh, wait, wait, oh, wait, I need to reevaluate this because like clearly my perception is wrong.
1: Yeah. So like, um, I'll, I'll tell you, like, I mean, it doesn't really mean that much unless you're um, unless you are like a Cohen and there's like only like so much that that really means. Um, But like, I'll jokingly tell people who are maybe a little bit too interested in my background. Like I'll jokingly tell somebody like just to troll them. If they don't have any idea that Leonard Cohen, I'll like jokingly tell people, Oh yeah, he's my cousin. Or that I'm related to the (laughs) Cohen brothers or that I'm related to figure skater, Sasha Cohen. Um
2: (laughs) Is that fun? I mean, that's, I mean, I, I do get asked if I'm related to Karen Carpenter. No, I'm wondering like, Okay. Do you think the guy who was all, it's a big secret. I'm not supposed to tell what tribe I'm from. Like, was he just wrong? Was he just pulling somebody's leg? Like, what?
1: I mean, he could have had a sense of humor about it and just been like playing a joke on all these fundies. But like, if you were raised, it's such a weird thing to be like, oh, this is a big secret. Like, I'm sort of like suspecting. Like, was this guy like actually Jewish?
2: I mean, he was ethnically Jew is I'm sorry, is ethnically Jewish. Is that the correct term?
1: Because it seems to me like the type of thing where because like a lot of people just don't even know. And so like it seems to me like it's the type of thing where like if you didn't know and you didn't want a lot of people to know that you were talking about it, then you know you would like make something up but you would keep it like a secret. And so like you would, it's like a lie that you would tell to one person, but you tell them not to tell anyone.
2: No, I'm like fairly sure that he was, that he was Jewish. He was just like, he was this Jewish guy who had converted and and now he's at Hiles Anderson. Converted? Yeah. So now he's at Hiles Anderson because he wants to like go out and convert other Jews to the IFB because of Jesus, you know.
1: Was he like, so was he like converted to Baptist or was he like a Jews for Jesus guy?
2: Well, both. I assume. So
1: Jews for Jesus, not actually Judaism.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, yes, obviously it's not Judaism, but like he's still ethnically Jewish though. I
1: mean, you could be ethnically Jewish, but not practice the religion.
2: Yeah. Cause like this guy wanted to, he wanted to basically be a missionary to other Jewish people.
1: Oh, that's the worst. They, they try that too. They'll like send people to I think I told you about this I sent you like a, a tweet that I saw where it was like my wife successfully sussed out a, a Jews for Jesus couple that tried to because she was like she heard the wife say I'm so glad that Hashem put you as the head of our household and she's like,
2: see I got the concept though that that the, the Jews for Jesus people are like non-jewish people like that just like want to go convert all the Jews. Like okay, like me, a non-Jewish person, trying to run around and convert you.
1: That's no, like that's just you being a mission. No, Jews for Jesus. That's like, uh, I think a specifically like a subset of like Messianic Judaism. So
2: yes, okay, so I can tell you that it is because Messianic Judaism is like Judaism, but like, think the Messiah has already come.
1: Jews for Jesus, or any other form of Messianic Judaism. Is not Judaism. Messianic Judaism is a form of Christianity that has appropriated Jewish holidays and customs in order to persuade or to try to persuade non religious ethnic Jews to convert to Christianity by draping it in familiar custom. So Jews for Jesus are not Jews. Messianic Judaism is not Judaism, it is Christianity. Jewish theology is clear on this. So, following Jewish religion and theology is mutually exclusive. Like for exa- like when I had my phone interview to see if I qualified for my birthright trip, they straight up asked me if I was messianic. If I had been messianic and then told them that I was messianic, they would have told me that I did not qualify for the trip because I was not, because Messianic Judaism is not Judaism, it is Christianity.
2: So I feel like there's a possibility that I had some things backwards here. So I had been under the impression that Messianic Judaism as a religious movement or religious group consists of mostly ethnically Jewish people who have, and please excuse my terminology because I know this is Anyway, yeah. excuse my terminology, but people who are ethnically Jewish who have seen the light uh, about Jesus being the Messiah. And so they kind of took it upon themselves as like, oh, I'm Jewish and my Messiah is here. Woohoo! <laughs> so they take on like Jewish holidays and Jewish customs that they've always celebrated, but they've moved the Sabbath to Sunday because that has something to do with Jesus that I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, and then with worshiping Jesus as Messiah, so as the completion of Jewish religion. And then there are also, like, non-ethnically Jewish people who convert from Christianity to Messianic Judaism and then also take on, like, Jewish customs, Jewish holidays while yeah. worshiping Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, for one thing, I feel like I feel, I have the types of people, like, the ratio of the types of people backwards,
1: I, so before the 19, I don't know about the ratio of the types of people who are in, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't generally associate with messianic types because they're uh, it's just too weird for me. Um, so before, like, but the history before the 1960s, Jews who converted to Christianity were expected to give up their Jewish culture. In the 1960s, so like we talked about earlier, with the same sort of movement that propelled First Baptist Church, uh, the, the IFB and whatever, into becoming a mega church, and the same movement that made Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham into national, like superstar pastors, like household names. So it brought a lot of people who were otherwise non religious to Christianity. Among some of these people, were people who were raised with jewish traditions but were essentially atheist or secular or whatever and we'll get into this later but because like jewish atheism is his own sort of like interesting like cultural tradition that dates back a long 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 time um but essentially like a lot of it was ethnic jews who got dragged into the evangelical movement and then Got joined by regular Christians, so you end up with like a like a blend, like a smattering of ethnic Jews who converted to Christianity, and then a bunch of evangelicals who think that Judaism is sort of like neato. Like, oh, that's interesting. I just like a,
2: think they're neat.
1: Yeah, they, who don't want to, but they don't want to give up on their promised mansion on Hallelujah Street in heaven.
2: Oh, okay. So number <laughs> one, I had no idea that this was so recent. They're
1: building him a mansion. On Hallelujah Street Is that how the song goes, I think.
2: That was close. And I really um I don't know why, but hearing you quote IFB song lyrics is honestly just so amusing to me.
1: Yeah, but, but anyway, like so messianic <laughs> Judaism as as we see it today, is less than a hundred years old. And it's essentially born out of like a culture clash and born out of like cognitive dissonance.
2: So do you think that messianic judaism is specifically a result of the evangelical views on judaism and jewish people like you know like the whole idea about like jews have a special relationship with god like is this is this a result of that
1: i do like i I can't really like what i can say is that like growing up not christian you really like see The stark difference between how, at least in America, like how Christians are treated institutionally in this country, as opposed to like any other religion. So for like, for instance, if you are Jewish and you wish to obey Jewish dietary laws, maybe not strictly, but you do, for instance, um, as I do, where you don't eat pork or shellfish and uh, I don't mix meat with dairy, but like I haven't got like separate fridges separate dishes all that stuff like you are almost always treated as if any dietary restriction that you may have is an inconvenience it's sort of like like you know going around if you're like a vegetarian or a vegan and everywhere that you go is like oh you you're one of those things well here's like half a bowl of iceberg lettuce like it's it's like being treated like that
2: so it's like being a vegetarian in the deep south is what you're telling me yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean that's that's a a perfect example. Like um or like holidays are another example. So like Christians never have to worry about getting their holidays off from work because Christmas is Christmas and Easter always falls on a Sunday. But if you're Jewish, I mean like when so when I was in college, I would tell my professors like I can't I can't go to class today and then a week from Wednesday because it's Rosh Hashanah and then it's Yom Kippur. And those are, are really important Jewish holidays. Those are like most important Jewish holidays, two of the most important Jewish holidays. And they would respond to me by saying something like, oh, well, you only have two absences before it negatively affects your grade. And every absence you have after that is going to knock 10% off your grade. Like, and I'm not going to let you make excuses is like the response that I would get. Yeah. So like one time, I mean, one time I had a boss tell me like, well, if a holiday was so important, then they would make it on the same day every year so that you could get it off.
2: Ugh. okay so so the first one is just like plain rude and inappropriate. Um but the second one like they would just make it on the same day every year. I'm sorry. Does that guy? Okay, number 1. Okay, Easter is not remotely on the same day every year.
1: Yeah, but Easter is always on a Sunday. So it's not something you have to worry about like if you're if you're working a job that's like a 9 to 5 Monday to Friday, you never have to worry about having Easter off.
2: Okay, yeah, but you know it's not on the same day every year? Uh Chinese New Year.
1: Yeah, but you celebrate Chinese New Year at night, right?
2: I mean, I don't know, but it's an extremely important holiday to what, like a billion people?
1: A billion people. That's true. We do, I don't know, I don't know a lot about Chinese New Year. But
2: um, I mean, that just makes me mad because I feel like all of that is so rude and unnecessary. Okay, my experience in liberal, non religious Portland, Oregon, I have never had an issue, like, usually based on, depending on what my work schedule is. I usually either need to come in to work an hour late or leave work an hour early to make it to Ash Wednesday services.
1: Oh, right. That's the one where they like Simba you on the forehead with. (laughs) Yes. uh,
2: And I think I came to work with my smudge on this year, but I might have.
1: I I remember that because it was before the quarantine. It was
2: right before quarantine. Did I go to work with it on or did I go to services after work? Do you remember
1: you had you had it on when you showed up for work that okay,
2: day. because I didn't remember, I couldn't remember which one I did. Um, but no, so, okay, so we, we're in Portland. It's like a secular, non-religious place. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm coming into work an hour late on Wednesday because I have to go to mass and get my, my smudge. And nobody bats an eye about it. And nobody cares that I'm wearing a smudge on my head all day at work. And that's like a totally non essential, like that is not nearly as important as like Rosh Hashanah. Like it's not. It's not like like that is more on par with like Easter or Christmas. Ash Wednesday is not one of those. It's like totally non essential. It's it's completely it's completely optional. It's just a holiday, like for it's particularly meaningful for me in like my personal faith. I can just be like, I can just be like, oh, yeah, I'm coming in an hour late and I'm going to walk around with a smudge on my head all day. Uh, you're you're my employer. You can't discriminate against me religiously. See you an hour late on Wednesday. Bye. And like I can just do that. And the fact that you can't get a, get off work for like your Christmas level holidays, that gets hard. It gets my blood pressure up a little bit.
1: It depends on your employer, but like, I mean, if you're Jewish and you have worked for like a professional sort of job for a number of years that was like, was not like a specifically like a Jewish organization, there is a 100% chance that you have had a mandatory work meeting scheduled on a Jewish holiday mm-hmm. and then were treated like you were a stick in the mud or like an inconvenience when you asked your boss to change it or you asked to be excused. But it's like one of those situations where like, if like there's a meeting You know, like if if you have a professional job and there is a meeting, maybe it's like an important meeting where decisions are being made. And if you're not there, then you're not making the decisions that are. And so that's going to negatively affect you professionally. And you're not going to have your input. That's going to negatively affect you professionally. I know that there's like a sort of negative stereotype out there about Jews giving preferential treatment to like each other in, in professional situations. But really, what's going on here is that, like, when we get into positions of power, we see it as like a duty to make sure that the door stays open, you know, and to like protect each other from people that we like that we know are not going to have our best interests. Like I was talking, like, so the cultural and societal like pull and bias, like, like well, I'm I'm, tr- I'm going to connect this back to messianic Judaism really quick because we kind of got off track. Like the the cultural and societal pull and. Like bias that there is in the academic world towards Christianity and Christian culture at least is very strong. Like, and this is in 2020 when things are more accepted than they used to be. I can only imagine that like 50, 60 years ago, when this stuff was really good, like when this, this evangelical movement was really like getting off the ground, it would have been less accepted. The pull to assimilate customs, it's still strong. So when we're talking about the pull that Christianity has and why like you can see why messianic judaism would be appealing because uh, essentially what this is is this is becoming a christian but it makes it a lot lot a lot of times easier than having to constantly deal with being seen as an outsider
2: so i grew up with this perception of jews as like oh those poor people You know, all the signs are right in front of them, that they can't see that Jesus was the Messiah. Like, they waited 20 centuries for the Messiah, but they missed him. And it's only the Messianics that are fulfilling God's covenant with the Jews. So, I mean, I figure there's probably something you want to say about.
1: It only takes a basic look at this issue to really see, like, what the problem with this is. Um and. I'm going to start with like the concept of the Messiah itself. Cause like you grew up, you like Christian, like, but like hardcore Christian. So like their view, like you've basically been told, Oh, well there was X, Y, and Z um, prophecy that was put into this book. And why didn't they see it? Like now that we accept Jesus, we can look back at these books and say, Oh, like, look, this was talking about Jesus. This is talking about like, we got none of that in Judaism. Like the Messiah is, is going to be basically a great king who will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and usher in the messianic age, and then there's going to be peace. So there's nothing in there about him being the literal son of God. There's nothing in there about him being like half man, half God. There's nothing in there about him being able to perform miracles. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: Okay, so this is just like a human dude. A Human guy. Human guy. No virgin birth, like none of that miraculous, like no, like the seven major miracles.
1: No, like he's just like a guy. He's like a person, like 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 King David or King Saul, like the King Solomon. The the so the Jewish concept of the Messiah looks absolutely nothing like how Christians describe Jesus. I, like there's all sorts of weird retconning that they do to make Jesus into the Messiah. Like if you look at the old, like
2: we're gonna do messianic prophecies at some point because um. Christians claim about 400, I think, different prophecies. There's like, okay, there's even stuff like in the Song of Songs. Uh, some of the ways that the characters are described is taken as a messianic prophecy because, um, the, the, the way the wording is, oh, uh, well, you know, if you, if you interpret this specific phrase a specific way, then that prophesies this or whatever. Um, but we're going to get into that in, in more detail, but a lot of it is kind of like, you, do, you can't necessarily read just the Old Testament and be like, oh yeah, this is prophesying Jesus. Like you have to have the New Testament and then read it back and go, oh, well, this could be a prophecy. Well, this could be a prophecy.
1: Like when I compare it to the Star Wars sequel where they had to like-
2: It's like a, yeah, it's like a time travel paradox.
1: Bring up, or I'm going to bring up something that we talked about briefly in the episode where we talked about all of the different Christian denominations.
2: Okay, go for it.
1: I think towards, so towards the end of that episode, I said something like that Christianity was never a religion that was intended for the Jews. The books, which Christians refer to as the New Testament, are all written in Greek. And the reason for this is because they were written to appeal to the Romans. If you are a person like me, who does not accept the divinity of Jesus, you have to look at Christianity and and why this isn't how Christianity spread, like early in its years. So, we've already covered this idea that the idea, like the idea that a half man, half God who performs miracles is impossible in Judaism. But for Romans, maybe not so much. Like a few things about that. So, Romans often adopted the gods of other cultures into their own culture, which is why, so they essentially worshiped Greek gods. Although they different had they had different names for them, so like Zeus became Jupiter, like Poseidon became Neptune, and so on. The Romans already viewed their emperor, like the Roman emperor, like like Julius Caesar, you know, or whoever the emperor was, they already viewed this figure as a half man, half god type guy. So a Christ-like deity king was an idea that they were used to. So if you Look at life under this empire. It was very much a polytheistic culture. Every vi- like every village, every town you would go to, or like every you know region within the empire, they would have a different god that they worshipped, like for different reasons. So, like say you were an early missionary and you were going out to spread Christianity, you could go to a town which accepts the existence of other gods, and they'd have like their own god and say that they worshipped Poseidon or whatever that was their god for that town, um, because they were by the water. You'd say, oh, well, you guys worship Poseidon. This is my God. He did X, Y, and Z. And he sent his son, Jesus, to earth to save all of mankind. And they'd be like, oh, wow, that God's pretty cool. I guess we better worship that one too. He, like, he sounds like a pretty powerful God. So like you could convert them to worshiping your God, and maybe they wouldn't resist so much because their culture was already like, oh, well there are multiple gods. These are the ones that we worship in this village. Other people worship different ones. That's fine. Christianity was essentially a religion that was made to spread throughout the Roman empire. And eventually like it became the official, the official religion of the empire. So it was never meant as a religion that was for the Jews. It was never meant for us. That's why we don't follow it because it is wholly incompatible with our existing beliefs even though they use all of our books
2: so one quick one quick correction christians do not believe that that jesus was half man half god christians believe that jesus was 100 human and 100 god concurrently down to the dna like to you that's a tiny detail to christians that is a really big freaking deal So I had to make that correction. Like my reaction. So back to the like hashtag not all Christians thing. My reaction is definitely like my emotional reaction is to be triggered or offended about you saying that whole piece about the Greek and the Greco-Roman gods. But like, I can't because there is a literal scripture account of that exact story that you you just told. Like I can point you to a scripture where it happened.
1: Well, like, I mean, I just want to say to everybody. I like I'm not here to tell you oh your religion's false I'm not here to tell you that you like you shouldn't believe it or that you should stop going to church or that like I like I just want you to understand why Jewish people aren't going to see Jesus as the Messiah and why we aren't going to convert to Christianity and like there's no use in trying to do it maybe you'll get like one or two if you put like all of your resources into it but like it's not it's not going to happen.
2: Yeah. And it goes back to the idea of like Christianity is the default. And that's something that American Christians experience regardless of being raised in a cult or not raised in a cult. Uh, I did want to tell you the story real quick that I was speaking about. It's in Acts, uh, Book of Acts, Chapter 17. So Paul gets to Athens and he sees that they have all these different temples to different gods. Like they have a temple to Athena. They have a temple to Dionysus. And they have a temple to all these other gods. Uh, and they have this one extra temple. And it's like a really nice uh, temple. And it says it's to the unknown god. So basically, the Athenians are like covering their butts in case there is one more, like more powerful god that they don't know about and don't smart. have a temple to. Very <laughs> smart. Like this is this is logical. This makes sense. And
1: get, um, out get out of jail free
2: Get out of jail free temple. So Paul gets. You up. didn't
1: build a temple to me. Well, technically. Technically, I did. I did. I <laughs> no, you.
2: It's to whatever god I didn't know about.
1: You didn't say my name. Ah, but we're not allowed to say your name. Yeah. There you go. See. Um, Can't send me to hell.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's insurance. Got Um, in on
1: a technicality.
2: (laughs) So Paul gets up in the public square and he tells the Athenians, and this is really smart of him. He gets up and he tells the Athenians like, oh, hey, I found the unknown God. It's actually it's the Jewish God and actually also his son, Jesus, who is the Messiah.
1: I'm like, oh, interesting.
2: And they were like, "Oh, that's the unknown god. Are you sure?" And Paul was like, "Yeah, I'm absolutely sure." Um, he knocked me off a horse one time, and the Athenians. We'll get to that. And the Athenians are like, "Really? You found the unknown god? Cool. We worship him now." So when you say that Christianity was spread by using the current gods already in place, like, like I said, it makes me feel defensive. It really does. Uh, but my own scripture tells a story about that happening. So I really can't fight it. And I did <laughs> I did want to point out like having your beliefs questioned or or just like straight up discounted by another person like that can be unsettling that can put you on edge a little bit no matter how open minded you are especially if you are an American Christian and and you know people who are going to challenge those beliefs do need to understand that when we feel those feelings of defensiveness that it those that that defensiveness is coming from Years of being told that your religion is the is the baseline, is the default, and always having been treated like that.
1: I think it's funny that you like your guys's attitude toward questioning. Christians are like, "Oh, how dare you question!" Like Jewish, like you're questioning. They're like, "Oh, well, this again." Like the rabbis, like, "Oh, I I don't deal with this eight times a day. Somebody coming in and asking me."
2: Well, yeah, but if you and I are gonna, so if you and I are gonna have this conversation. Like I need to be aware that it comes naturally to you to just be willing to, oh yeah, why? To just just question everything. And you need to be aware that it that that when you respond that way, it does make me feel defensive. Well, that doesn't mean I'm gonna react in a rude way. That doesn't mean i you know, that you're going it doesn't it certainly doesn't mean that you're trying to be rude or hurt my feelings if you question something.
1: And that kind of brings me to another You'll bear with me here. Um, so Judaism is the religion, the rituals, the traditions um, that are commanded of the descendants of Jacob for the nation of Israel. We do not go out of our way to bring into our tradition other people. Try to bring you in. So Christianity, on the other hand, um, many branches, not all branches, many branches, they do seek to evangelize. Jews do not have a concept of hell as it exists for Christians. We do not have the same concept as of heaven as it exists for Christians. There is no like stakes. There is no mortal peril if somebody goes their life without accepting our God as the one true God. That's like a fundamental difference that like people need to understand. So to me, this makes these denominations of Christianity that put the focus on evangelism, that put the focus on quote unquote soul winning into denominations that exist out of aggression. Personally, I see the act of evangelism as an act of aggression, like as much as I like laugh in like annoyance about the fact that I had to you know take the miziiza down from my door. Or you know to make people less likely to try to proselytize.
2: Well, I was hoping that that would come up about how there's uh, no heaven or hell in Judaism. So
1: how did you how did you react when somebody when you found that out? When you're like, oh, so you
2: want to know how I found out? How orange is the new black? Really? Yeah.
1: Wait, and you're just like, wait, what? I have yeah, to look there's this up. Yeah,
2: there is a yeah, there is an episode early. It's in one of the early seasons where somebody decides to convert. Uh, so, so she wants. I I believe she wants to convert to get kosher meals uh, in jail.
1: Oh, because the kosher meals are better.
2: Right, because kosher meals are better. But then, uh, she finds real meaning within this conversion process. Ah. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's it's and it turns into this very sweet story where that character and I can't remember which character because I've been meaning to rewatch that and I probably should do that with the rest of my.
1: That's interesting. I haven't seen that 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 season. I only watched the first two seasons.
2: See, I kind of oh. wanted. I kind of want to start over again because I think I've seen the first three three and a half. Okay. But anyway, um, no, like she, she, this, this, this character just finds like actual peace and actual happiness. And one of the big draws to her about converting is that there's no heaven or hell. And she feels like that gives her the space to live more purely because she's not focused on like, oh, is this action going to affect my eternal consequences? It's just like, how is this affect? how does this action affect me and the people around me?
1: How did you react when you found that? Was that like mind blowing for you where you're just like, wait,
2: what? It was. And I thought, I mean, I just thought it was a really lovely concept because at the point where I currently am, and and I think this is not, this is not what I'm not making a statement of what I'm going to believe for the rest of my life because who the hell knows? No pun intended. <laughs> but at the point where I currently am, I don't believe in heaven or hell as a as a literal place. Absolutely believe that that Heaven and Hell are real, but are they physical places? No, are they literal? No, it's a it's a it's a state of mind or it's a it's an experience,
1: yeah. And so for us, it's not that like heaven doesn't exist. But like heaven isn't some place where you go when you die if you're good. And then you get a big mansion in the swimming pool and like every Ferrari in the driveway
2: <laughs> is it eternal life?
1: Yeah, and the angels have violins that they use to play back that ass up at the club every night. Like,
2: <laughs> but like, is heaven a, is heaven eternal life? I don't know. You don't know. Like,
1: I, like, there's there's much debate on the topic. Like, if you read from different scholars and philosophers, they'll all say different things.
2: I believe in eternal life, as in like your consciousness or your soul, like that there is. There is there is a, a there is something after being alive and breathing on earth but I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a place that you go or or a timeline that you live out I don't see it like that I just I just believe that I, I just don't believe that your consciousness is completely erased when you die I believe that that it's a, that it, there's a there's a a good outcome or a bad outcome depending on uh how you lived your life
1: yeah, but like, so that that's an important thing because like this threat of eternal punishment and like torture is how the IFB keeps people in, right? Th- like this yeah. is another thing that I want to say because like I've heard so many people say like, um, oh, all religions are the same. Um, do what we say and you'll get to heaven. And if not, you'll go to hell." Like that's like, that's what I hear at least from very uninformed liberal atheist types whose exposure to religion is, is essentially how they see the political influence of the religious right and like evangelical Christianity in America. So like they assume that all religions are roughly the same as Christianity and that all Christianity is pretty much the right wing evangelism that's so prevalent here in America. And like, I, like, I can see how this would definitely warp somebody's view Like, especially when it comes to foreign conflicts and sectarian violence, when, like, if it's between, like, Jews and Muslims in Israel and Palestine, or if it's, like, between Shiite and Sunni Muslims in Iraq, or if it's between, like, Catholics and Protestants in Ireland and, like, Northern Ireland. So I really don't like to talk about the political situation in Israel publicly, because while I personally have my own opinions about it. And my opinions are no doubt influenced by my Jewish identity. I don't feel as if I have truly studied this foreign conflict in a way that would allow me to know enough to decide what I think the best way of sorting it all out is. It hasn't ever stopped anybody before from giving their opinion, even if it was like terribly uninformed. But this is just like another reason why it irks me so much. When evangelicals whose only knowledge of this conflict is basically right-wing, like, Muslim-hating propaganda, or, like, left-wing type people whose only knowledge of this conflict is from Instagram infographics that are produced by Hamas apologists that are, like, just spouting, like, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, and, like, want to, like, they want to talk to me about this. Like, it's so complicated that even if I did understand it enough to, like, explain it to people— I wouldn't be able to to uh, uh, convey the information about like why they're wrong well enough to be able to break people's prejudices about it. And so like I certainly don't have the mental and spiritual energy to explain people over and over and over and over and over again like I'm asked to. like.
2: yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a great analogy because religion is complicated because people are complicated And because culture and history are complicated. And it's never going to be constructive to reduce someone's religion to your very limited understanding of it. And like when we choose to do that, do we just invite conflict?
1: It's like equating all religions is like, you know, I mean, it's like saying that all people who are in a marginalized class or or have a marginalized identity— would understand each other's struggle. Like, I am never going to understand what it's like to be a black person or what it's like to be a transgender person or somebody like that and face that sort of discrimination. But those people, like, their head would spin if they found out all of the weird places that anti-Semitism appears where, like, they don't even expect it and you wouldn't see it unless you were looking for it.
2: Right. It's not a oh we face the same discrimination.
1: No, it's all different. It's
2: it's just like, oh, that there are there are amounts of discrimination that we both face. And I mean, and that's the that's the thing about privilege that I'm not gonna get into because we don't really have time. Uh, privilege is not an on and off switch. Privilege is a, is a scale and it's really more of a three D model.
1: People treat it like that though, because people have are I mean, it's just like heaven and hell. People see heaven and hell as like a binary. You're either privileged or you're not. You're either this right. or you're that. You're, and you're, like.
2: privilege being binary, just it just like okay, as a, as a um, as a as a white middle class, well educated, bisexual, feminine person, <laughs> like it really gets to me. <laughs>
1: Where do you sit on the? Are you over eight points? Then you're, you know.
2: Right. Yeah. Because it's like in a lot of areas, I'm very privileged. But that absolutely does not mean I've never been discriminated against. Yeah, um, I don't know. It's, anyway, it's, uh, I've heard from evangelicals and honestly, from a lot of white people in general, they kind of just perceive that anti-Semitism is over. Yeah. Especially because we have dog whistles like pro-Israel that are just thrown around in politics and everywhere else.
1: Yeah. So the fun thing about anti-Semitism is that it's like it comes a lot, uh, like a lot of it comes from the right. A lot of it comes from the left, too. Like, politically speaking, it comes from the right. It comes from the left. That's not up for debate. But just think back to the racism episode, like episode two, where we talked about when you are told something that uh, makes you uncomfortable... And if you're told that something you're doing is racist, you know, you should listen to it. Think about what you're hearing and, and work to change that rather than put the guards up, circle the wagons, you know, um, and or, like around your statement and your perspective just to intentionally prevent yourself from changing. So same thing here. But what I want to say is that. So anti-Semitism is a clear and present danger to the safety of Jewish people in the United States and around the world, but I'm talking about the United States specifically, and it comes from right-wing and left-wing sources, both of those sources. So on the political right, they will act with willful blindness to serious anti-Semitism and violence that comes from the political right. On the political left, they will act with willful blindness to anti-Semitism that comes from the political left they will point fingers at each other and they will leave us out to dry. They are not allies to Jews because they will turn a blind eye to violence against us unless it is politically advantageous for them to talk about it. On the right, it is very clear and very obvious where this anti-Semitism appears. It appears when mainstream Republican Party, right wing Republican Party turns a blind eye to white nationalists and white supremacists and they use the quote unquote we support Israel line as a cover. And then they accept into their midst people who spew anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like QAnon, that whole thing, which harkens back to the protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is like the, you know, the stairway to heaven of of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Like I mean, that's just one that I just don't have time to get into, but it's influenced violence against Jews for more than a century. And like they'll throw out the name George Soros as a left-wing boogeyman, fully knowing that he is the centerpiece to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that have stoked violence against Jews for years and years and years. So we see this in Charlottesville when white supremacists were marching and chanting and they were saying, Jews will not replace us. And the president only was like, very half-hearted in condemning them. Um, I won't say that, oh, he didn't condemn them at all because people on the right will be like, well, yes, he did, blah, 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 blah. Like, he was very half-hearted in condemning them. We like So we saw this at the mass shooting at the synagogue in Poway like two years ago when the right wing wants to be racist and anti-Semitic. They're not discreet about it.
2: Yeah, and those code words, by the way, that's something that I've heard you mention quite a bit off air.
1: Oh, yeah, it's all coded.
2: Well, because so many people will use them without knowing. Like okay, for example, so I've heard many many conspiracy theories about George Soros. I had no idea he was Jewish until you told me, and I was I was like, "What? He's yeah. what? Yeah." No, that was an example that really stuck out to me about how it's all about oh he's gonna try to do
1: New World Order.
2: But like, I had no idea he was Jewish. Yeah. So this can be like this can be baked into the way that we think and and the ways that we speak, and it's not it can be so much more subtle. Like It's more subtle than, uh, I don't know, certain Shakespeare characters.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, have you read The Merchant of Venice?
2: Dude, I was in The Merchant of Venice.
1: (laughs) So, Shylock is still a slur that's used for Jews. Yeah. Um, Actually, you know what? This is a place where I can say that I can relate to the struggle of transgender people, because like, if you look at J.K. Rowling's recent quite disgusting and disappointing comments about transgender people, I think that I can identify with having an author whose work I greatly admire say hateful things about me.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? I can, I can accept that. Oh,
1: also that reminds me in theater class, my junior year of high school in theater class, I had, uh, my theater teacher was having us all do Shakespeare scenes. And one of my classmates was Jewish and had him play Shylock and the Merchant of Venice in the scene where I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm. That's like, that's some racist that that's yeah um
2: yeah i mean that's like yeah. that's like cringy or straight up racist depending on what scene yeah
1: no it was it's the like, one at the end where it was like where, he, where like, they, where they, where were they like,
2: take their pound of flesh back
1: yeah where they're just like yeah. oh he's taking the pound of flesh and then what's her name portia yeah portia is that's like uh i'm gonna sh-, like they, they borrow money from this guy and then they straight up didn't pay him back and he's just like fuck you pay me like <laughs> what am i supposed to do here like you can't just take money from me and they're just like well you don't get the money and you don't get the like he's like what am i supposed to do he's trying to run a business here i'm sympathetic <laughs> to shy like okay you know what, it's gonna be trending gabrielle hawk cohen is a shylock sympathizer which is like the like imagine that like that's that's a racist hashtag but then I'd report it to Twitter and they'd be like, nah, sorry, nothing we can do about that. Anti-Semitism isn't a serious problem on our pra- on our platform at all.
2: See, that is exactly... <laughs> okay, dude, that's the next place that I was going to go with this because yeah. I think that a lot of leftists and liberals, like, either, like, either... Okay, so either the opinion is like, oh, anti-Semitism, okay, like, that's just like a few crazy people on the right. Or they'd like, oh, well, that's just a thing of the past. Like, oh, yeah, well, okay... Shakespeare was. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. Well, you know, Shakespeare was. uh, Shakespeare had a lot of personal issues and it probably was like four dudes anyway. I think for the people on the left, like, it's easy to excuse. Like, cause that's like the excuses that you hear. It's like, oh, it's just a few right wing crazy people. This isn't something that we really have to deal with.
1: Yeah. Well, left wing anti Semitism is much better disguised because they'll usually like things that they'll usually say they're like they'll be like oh i'm criticizing israel when actually they're just like spewing hateful anti-semitic tropes and racist stereotypes
2: okay so like political statements but like there's a there's a stereotype behind it
1: so in the united states um people have a tendency to look at every sort of disenfranchisement marginalization and discrimination through the lens of anti-black racism and there is a very good reason for this so throughout the history of the united states the most consistent and prevalent embodiment of general like hate and bigotry has been against black people uh, that's I, I don't think that's controversial to say um the, like the most prominent and historically contentious periods of social change in this country are centered around the fight against anti-Black racism. So with the Civil War in the 19th century, with the Civil Rights Movement in the 20th uh, 20th century, and with what we are seeing today with regards to Black Lives Matter, anti-police brutality, all of these protests that are going on today. This is what we are taught about in schools from a young age, and rightly so. However, like we were saying earlier, the struggles of black people in this country with slavery, with Jim Crow, with police, viol- uh, police violence, they are not necessarily applicable to other forms of discrimination. So when somebody says something to me like, I identify with the struggle of Jewish people against anti-Semitism because I have experienced my own form of discrimination, or because uh, we learned about the Holocaust in school. When somebody says that to me, I am almost always skeptical for a few reasons. The so first Like there is a huge difference between anti-Semitism and anti-black racism. And I'm generalizing here, but like anti-black racism has a tendency to be brash. It has a tendency to be overt. Like the, the racist stereotypes against black people is that they're stupid, that they are lazy, that they're, you know, physically violent and that they're dangerous and dirty. That's what, that's what, you know, racism against black people usually like looks like. That's what the narratives are. And so while anti-Black racism has prevented a large portion of this country's Black population from generating lasting wealth, anti-Semitic racist stereotypes are that we are rich and that we are successful because we lied and cheated our way into getting there. So it's not that we're physically violent. It's that we operate behind the scenes as like puppet masters, as that we are influencing others to be violent in like a cold calculated manner in order to gain further control, in order to gain further power. Anti-Semitism is, is something that is secretive, it is shadowy, it is is morphing, it is changing, and it is fueled by conspiracy and lies and paranoia, and it uses you know innocuous sounding words that any well-meaning person could fall into the habit of using if they didn't know any better. Now the reason that for this is that the only way the only meaningful way I should say that anti-Semitism is taught about in American schools is through the lens of the Holocaust. but if you look at American Jews, far more of us, far more of our families came to this country between the years of eighteen fifty and 1920 than came following or to escape the Second World War in Nazi Germany. like anti-Semitism predates the Holocaust by thousands of years and people don't people just don't seem to recognize this so when somebody says to me that they are anti-racist to me that is not a guarantee that they're not anti-semitic like so no I know I mentioned this when I was talking about Israel publicly but like I I don't like talking about Israel publicly or at least like my opinion about the political situation. And so this is right here, one of the only times on the podcast that I will bring up this messy situation, this political situation that's over there, um, because I know that anything that I say about this, no matter what it is that I say, is going to be seen as highly controversial by a lot of people. I have personally dealt, like, this is just me. I'm not saying that this isn't, that it isn't different for different people. But I personally have dealt with more anti-Semitism relating to how left-wing people talk about Israel than I have personally dealt with coming from right-wing people like neo-Nazis and the like.
2: I I, I certainly want to be corrected if I'm off base with either my terminology or my concepts here. But I I feel like talking about politics in the country of Israel is where a lot of people tend to cross a line. uh, because. Israel is a country in the geopolitical sense, but it feels impossible to talk about Israel as a place as a political force without talking about Jews in particular. I think people, people, because it is a country that is made up of a group that is also an ethnic and religious group. I think, like, I think that makes it complicated for like for people to talk about
1: complicated. So um, I'm going to say something just to clarify for anybody listening who's um, seething right now. Yes, you can criticize Israel without being anti-Semitic. Yes, it is possible to do. Um, I personally have a lot of my own criticisms about Israel and their government and what's going on over there. However, the vast majority of people who identify as anti-racist, do not know enough about anti-Semitism to be able to criticize Israel without invoking anti-Semitic tropes. Criticizing Israel and invoking anti-Semitic tropes and narratives are not mutually exclusive. So saying that you are quote-unquote just criticizing Israel doesn't mean that what you are saying is not anti-Semitic. So what you have to understand listening to this is that one of the most quintessential forms of anti-Semitism is saying that Jewish money has undue influence on the political system, or that political, or, or that politicians are bought and paid for with Jewish money in order to support Jewish political interests. But left-wing people, who I like, people who I see publicly identifying themselves on social media as anti-racist, defend it to the hilt. And then they went on that whole, oh, it's not anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. You guys are just crying anti-Semitism in order, like, in order to silence people thing, like, which is a whole other bag of worms, which I like, have no interest in unpacking here and now. But people who are willing to maybe, like, but people who are like, maybe not so adamantly left-wing, but like fairly liberal, they didn't get involved. Like They did not call out the anti-Semitism where it was so clearly. They just ignored it.
2: If I could just break yeah. in for a second, yeah, go for it. Um, what you said about uh, it—you guys are just crying anti-Semitism to silence people. Yes. Okay, listen. If that was said, oh, you're just crying feminism to silence people, or, yeah. or oh, you're just you're just claiming this is racist against black people to silence people. Like if somebody said that, <laughs> they'd be so canceled. Yeah, like stop kn- policing
1: my speech. I'm I'm right. I'm, I'm saying like
2: it's just like putting putting a different group of marginalized people in that sentence really yeah. kind of made it stick out to me quite right. a bit. Like,
1: that's something that I literally like. I see that said all the time, all the time. Like so, if you're actually anti-racist, you will condemn anti-Semites not just when it benefits you politically. Like if you're a left-wing sort of person and you're invoking the most famous act of anti-Semitism in history, the Holocaust, um, like as people do, people are like, this is like the Holocaust. Like all the time I see it on social media, people posting these infographics talking about, oh, this is just like the Holocaust. Like, if you are comparing the modern Republican Party to and and like the modern right wing to Nazis, you had better be willing to stand up against anti-Semitism when it is within your own ranks. Or you are nothing better than just some fake woke opportunist looking for clout on Twitter among progressive circles, and I have no time for your garbage takes about these issues. Ironically, this is just another example of something that the right wing will glom onto and then use as the shield to cover their, like, and point fingers and be like, we're not the anti-Semitic. like not take responsibility for their share of it that's so prevalent and like i just want to say that after having said that i'm absolutely not trying to say that left-wing anti-semitism is worse or more dangerous than right-wing anti-semitism i'm just like spent more time talking about left-wing anti-semitism because it is more difficult to identify and more difficult to explain even though it's less obvious
2: no i feel like that's that's fine because this is here's here's my thought about this. This is primarily a podcast about cults and specifically the IFB cult. But two things. Number one, uh, the IFB and their relationship with Jewish culture and Jewish people is a little bit unique. And that does spark this unique, this conversation, the way we approach this conversation is still influenced by the the IFB and how they view Jewish people. Uh, Furthermore, you, you hear people say things like all religions are cults and well, clearly neither one of us believe that that's accurate, but I do think that the, the popular perception of all religion being somehow cultic, I think that gives us a, a space within our podcast to talk about broader topics within the world, of religion and culture. And, and I honestly, it's kind of nice to not talk about my own trauma for an episode. <laughs> it's kind of refreshing
1: so don't worry about that because I'll make sure that next week episode is as traumatic as possible.
2: You know, you probably don't have to do that because we literally just talked about Jack Scott a few weeks ago.
1: Well, the episode that we're about to put out, because um, we're a few weeks behind, I'm ending the episode in the edit. I end the episode with a three minute long Jack Scop sermon about how much he hates women.
2: You know, I was there.
1: Sure. You were in the room for that one. So the recording. I, I think be I was. Bad. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um but no, unless unless you want an entire episode talking about my scop specific nightmares, which I do have.
1: Hey, Gabrielle here. If you enjoy the Leaving Eden podcast, head over to our Facebook group, Eden Exodus, where you can talk to other fans, ask us questions, and share memes. That's Facebook dot com slash Eden Exodus. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leavingedenpodcast, and you'll get access to extended and uncensored episodes. You can also support our show by recommending it to your family and your friends. The Leaving Eden Podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. And now, back to the show.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
2: Uh, So it seems like Jews and Judaism uh, occupy this weird space in the Christian consciousness where they're either hated or sort of fetishized, or it it seems to me like kind of both of those at the same time. And I I know that fetishizes, it's a different word, but I'm speaking about the way that that a lot of Christians still believe that the Jewish people are God's chosen people, uh, even believing that a prayer from a Jewish person has more power than that of a non-Jewish Christian person.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, th- I think fetishize is definitely an appropriate word, but like, welcome to be ju- being Jewish because like, when the Christians love you, they still hate you, you know, just a little bit.
2: That that answer to prayer. Uh, see, that's why I always say that if somebody wants to pray for me and they're not praying within my specific religious tradition, they should just go on ahead and pray for me because I'll take any positive energy. You know, if you want to pray to me to a so, uh, God that's not my God, you you go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate it. I don't care. But as far as the word fetish, I think that carries like a more sexual connotation when we use it in everyday vocabulary. The the connotation that I'm using is that of something magical, something mystical or powerful or potent. And I think that is the correct usage of the correct word uh, for when we see Christians co-opting Jewish traditions uh, like satyrs, like mezuzah. And I just know, okay, I know there's something you want to say about that.
1: So, like, this goes out to all of the Christians listening. If you are invited to a Jewish person's Seder, their Passover celebration, you should go if you want to. That's perfectly fine. You sh- if, To all of the Christians listening, you should not, for any reason, be having your own Passover Seders in Christian tradition. This is an appropriation of Jewish culture. I have heard of Messianic Seders where they talk about Jesus, and I've heard of Christians having their own Seders, but this here is a distinctly Jewish tradition and it is a Jewish tradition that was not started until after Jesus had already died. So you, can, you can't say that, oh, well, this is something from before Jesus. So this is something that we incorporated. No, this is something that.
2: Okay. But I always thought that uh, Seder is what Jesus was doing with his disciples the night before he was crucified. Like shortly before Passover, he's having a meal with this. Was that really a tradition that started after Jesus?
1: Scholars have dated the first Seder the first Passover Seder to slightly before slightly after the year 70 CE so th- this story that like I believe it as well because I'd heard it so many times but this story like I I looked into it it is in fact a lie I'm sure that you know maybe Jesus attended some sort of celebration of, of the holiday of Pesach but he did not attend a Passover Seder as we know it today this tradition did not exist at his at the time when he was alive it did not exist until decades after his death
2: oh so it was a passover meal but it wasn't like the the specific ritual or tradition that people do now i
1: don't know i mean it could have been who knows i mean it's it's, it's just something that they say that that oh well they say oh he was at a passover like but there was no that that's impossible
2: so just have this straight though uh, Seder is a retelling of the story of the Jews leaving slavery in Egypt and starting the journey to the promised land. In yes. Canaan.
1: Yes. Okay. The, the Israelites. Yes. Um. Uh, when I visited Israel, when we were in the old city, our tour guide pointed out a building and said, this is the building here where Christians believe that the last supper occurred, but this building wasn't built until the 700s. All of these like Renaissance paintings of the last supper or whatever, like that painting of the last supper is based on what the inside of that building looks like, but that building wasn't built until 700 years later.
2: Okay. So actually I want to get back to that building in one second, but I want to go back to, to the the thing about the Exodus from Egypt first, yeah. because that's such a specifically Jewish story and tradition. Like, it does feel disrespectful specifically to appropriate that story or to try to spin it into a Christian narrative.
1: But are Christians descendants of the Israelites?
2: Well, yes, if you ask
1: them. Like, no, is this a story about your ancestors' bid for freedom, or is this just something that you're celebrating because it's sort of tangentially related to Jesus? Like, that's that's where the difference is.
2: So... These Well, okay, but Christians are claiming a spiritual ancestry in those Israelites.
1: Like, is it because they followed Jesus and Jesus was a descendant of these people? Is that basically it?
2: Oh, no. No, it goes, like, so much deeper than that. Uh, Okay, so the Apostle Paul uh, was a Jew. I I mentioned him uh, a while ago on the show. Yeah. On this episode. Uh, He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. And then after Jesus' death he was sent to go find and kill the people who had been followers of Jesus because the Roman government was trying to present, prevent insurrection. So Paul, being a Jew, he was kind of happy to go kill these Christians because to him they were blaspheme, blasphemous. But on his way to go find and kill some Christians, Paul had a parano- paranormal religious experience uh, where God spoke to him and told him to become a Christian. And then he became one of the most influential, probably the most influential Christian writer. And over half of the New Testament is his writing.
1: Wait, like half your book is written by a guy who killed a bunch of people on behalf of an imperial government?
2: Okay, so I, d- I double-checked that. 28% of the content over half of the individual books.
1: Suddenly, David Hiles makes a ton more sense now.
2: Well, That's I mean, nuts. yeah, because like he Jesus- a knocked, bunch of people. Yeah, but Jesus knocked him off, of course, and changed his mind. Okay, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the difference here is that Paul uh, goes on to- to live a provably good life and not murder any more people. So this is going to be a really simplified version. Okay, so here's the doctrine. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I said grafted into the one root. So Paul compares Judaism to an olive tree. And Christianity is a branch off of a wild olive tree that's going to be grafted onto the established tree of Judaism. So in Paul's theology, all Christians are part of a sect of Judaism. When Jesus died, according to Paul, so okay, so the sacrifices in the temple, the, the tabernacle in the temple, were basically The theology is that the sacrifices in the in the tabernacle in the temple were like to hold you over, like to keep things going, to keep sin like. Barely like, keep ahead of the snowball effect of sin not being atoned for, uh, until Jesus came. So Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. So this is where you get uh, Christians uh, talking about Jesus as the Lamb of God, because in in Torah you see laws about there needs to be a a, a male lamb one year old who has no spots or blemished, and and that lamb is going to be sacrificed. So Jesus is the the lamb of God, so Jesus is the final sacrifice. Basically, the Christian theology is that all of that that was done in the tabernacle and then done in the temple was to like just hold us all over until the ultimate sacrifice came and that's Jesus. So when Jesus died, he abolished the ceremonial laws. So all of the laws that are related to that sacrifice that sacrificial like temple laws Like, all of that is abolished at the death of Jesus. And then the the moral law is kept. So, you know, like, don't kill people. Don't commit adultery. uh, Don't lie. Like, that moral law is kept. But the ceremonial law is replaced with the new covenant. So, remember we talked about the Abrahamic covenant between Abraham and God. I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. So, this is a new covenant brought, brought about by Jesus' death that marries the new traditions of Christianity with those of Judaism. So in this doctrine that that was that Paul put together in the book, you'd have to read the entire book of Romans uh, to get to make it make any sense at all. In Paul's doctrine, Christians are essentially also Jews, and this is in conjunction with the messianic prophecy. This is why Christian religious ceremonies and religious learning are so reminiscent of the ceremonies that we read about in the Old Testament it's why churches have an altar. Like that's meant to represent the sacrificial altar in the temple. It's why we have priests because priests represent the Levite priest who made the sacrifice on the altar in the temple. It's why we refer to Jesus as the lamb of God. Those, that theology about the temple and specifically the ceremonies about sacrifices, that's a foundational part of Christian theology. And that's why we hold on to the Old Testament. That's why we don't just take the New Testament and get out. Like, that's our book. You all have your book. Like, that's why we still have both. Okay, so this is why you're going to see Christians having that full-scale model of the tabernacle in Arkansas where, like, people are dressed up as priests. And there's a full-scale model of the tabernacle that that you can walk through.
1: Nutty stuff.
2: I've been there. It's actually really cool. Like, it's it's, a... Who
1: do they get to play the priest? Is it just like a... It's just like
2: some random dude.
1: It's just some random. Is he clean shaven?
2: No, he's a beard.
1: Okay. As a descendant of the the priests, I have to say my culture is not a costume.
2: Fair enough. Christians are taught, though, like that all of this stuff means something like the number of skins and that are made to use to like make the walls of the tabernacle and like the color that the skins are supposed to be dyed and how many inches tall the seraphim on top of the altar of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant are supposed to be like all of that is all of that. Remember, we talked about biblical numerology. All of that stuff is supposed to mean something. (gasps) So this is why Christians are attached to Judaism. Does that make more sense now?
1: Yes, but it also see that's seems wrong. I feel like weirdly violated.
2: Okay, I think, think that's totally that's fair. bizarre. Like I wouldn't blame you for feeling that way. What? but it because Christians are taught though that they're grafted into Judaism. So I don't find it inappropriate. For example, uh, for Christians to believe that the number of skins that are dyed a certain color or the, the number of inches high that the seraphim are off the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, I don't have a problem with Christians believing that that means something or believing that that is foundational because that brings up the themes of sacrifice or the themes of repentance or the themes of redemption in my religion. Like I don't think that is specifically appropriative for me to read Torah and then and then you know interpret it that way.
1: I mean, you'd be wrong. I mean, I, I, guess is, I as long I, as long as saying I'm somebody's religion is wrong. But like, oh no,
2: you 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 are perfectly allowed to sit there and say it's wrong. I don't think it's appropriative. There, there's. It takes. I think it takes another step to become appropriative, and that's where we're going to talk about, uh, like people who do saters and p- people, yeah. whether it's done traditionally or whether you're trying to sprinkle in Jesus. The thing is, though, that we have been, we as Christians have been taught that these Jewish traditions and laws and writings are foundational to our Christian religion. And then we've been taught that we are by the apostle Paul that we are grafted in to the one. So it's one tree, one root. Judaism and Christianity share a root. It's just two branches of the same tree. That's the one true root theology. But being, being taught that we're grafted into the one, the one true root, I think that's where people get a little more bold and, and start to want to take parts of Jewish culture and just make it a Christian thing. Like that's, and that's where you get people with, the I was gonna say the chutzpah, but I think that's a bit appropriate, <laughs> especially because I, 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 right.
1: I can't say it right.
2: Can't, <laughs> I can't say it right
1: now. If you can't say it
2: see now I'm Mike Tyson. I can't
1: say it right. You sound like Mike Tyson.
2: I literally just said that.
1: Um, you know what? I mean, Sarah Palin said the chutzpah, which was no, the fun if You were over that. Yes, the chutzpah.
2: That's where Christians think they can take the Seder and make it about Jesus because they are functioning on that one true root theology and they've got it in their heads that they are essential essentially Jews. So they can they think they can just steal a Jewish tradition and be like make that about Jesus too.
1: So that's why they're always on being like, How do you feel about Jesus? You're this close. How do you feel yeah. about Jesus? I could get, just get you to say he was all right. Man, that's my end.
2: Right. So, But does that explain like why that line is so easy to cross for Christians?
1: Yes. And I'm so annoyed by it.
2: Okay. So the yeah. argument of, just to sew up the whole Apostle Paul thing. Yeah. Uh, the argument of, are Jews who follow Christ still Jews or are they something else? And are Gentiles who follow Christ somehow Jewish? That argument takes up quite a bit of space in the New Testament. Uh, Paul is... Like it would, it might be interesting for you to read the Book of Romans, um, because in the book, of, the Book of Romans is where Paul does most of his kind of he lays out his argument like a lawyer. He says, "Well, if this, then that, and then if this, then that," and he's he's very cut and dried about how he how he says. Have
1: you ever read the Talmud?
2: Uh, no, but I imagine it's probably like conceptually kind of similar. So, so Paul's whole thing though of like. Jews are also Christians and Christians, Gentiles are also Jewish. Like that whole thing. This is where Christians get the idea that certain parts of what we call Old Testament law are still to be followed. So very early in Christianity, Gentiles who were Christian, who like converted to Christianity, to following Jesus, were expected to go get circumcised and then also follow Torah. So they were expected to do all of, it, all of it, you know? The, the no mixing fabrics and the dietary laws and all of that. But Paul argued that they were under no obligation to do that. So the modern idea, like I said, is that those parts of the law were fulfilled or abolished when Jesus died and then parts of the law still apply. So it's basic logic for all Christians that we have to refrain from murdering um, and not commit adultery and not lie. Uh, I mean, unless you're Dave Hiles. But, like, the Ten Commandments, that's clearly meant for everybody, including modern Christians. But Christians don't want to follow the dietary laws at all. So uh, we've kind of decided as a group that that's part of what got abolished when Jesus died on the cross. And that we can also wear garments of mixed fabrics because, like, who cares? But Christians, especially stricter ones, like, this is where they come in with the argument about, like, well, tattoos, that might still be under the part of the law that we're supposed to follow because that's mentioned in Leviticus or like whether disobedient children can be killed by their parents or whether gay people should be stoned to death or not.
1: It's I mean it's real pick and choose sort of thing. Also like like Paul's like, "Oh, people don't like this. I'm just going to get rid of it because it's inconvenient." Like that's that's how it reads to me.
2: I think yeah, I think a more modern explanation of the apostle Paul so people who don't believe, so people who are Christians that don't believe the Bible literally uh, might say something more like, well, the apostle Paul was trying to balance an unbalanceable equation, you know, because he wanted, because Paul truly believed in Jesus and he wanted Jews to convert and he also wanted Gentiles to convert. So Paul kind of made some weird reaches and stretches to try to bring both of these groups of people together because his faith and like he really believed in the whole Jesus thing and he kind of went off the rails, like trying to get everybody into Jesus. So people who are not biblical literalists might have more of a like that kind of opinion okay. but anyway i'm sorry that got way off topic but i bring up the building where the passover meal was or wasn't because it was actually mentioned in my dad's book which is a bit of a mini tour guide to jerusalem and includes his research on traditional sites including like where the crucifixion was where jesus's tomb would have been but also where the where jesus passover meal would have been
1: i mean yeah i I think your dad being um uh scholar and a researcher of these things brings me to something that i want to say because there is a difference between somebody who is taking a genuinely scholarly interest in what is undeniably a fascinating tradition the history of that tradition but like it's perfectly okay like if you're a christian to find judaism and jewish traditions as a source of interest to you to look at like to research and to learn about um as sadie has done however y- y- I- what we're talking about here is like the problem of like fetishization and appropriation of, of Jewish traditions and, and appropriating them into some weird hybrid version with Christianity. Because like,
2: I mean, and I bring up my dad's book because I honestly do recommend it. It's called Where Was There and it's available on Amazon. It's especially valuable for any Christians who do want to visit Jerusalem to see the holy sites there. It's well researched and and it's also written with a tone of respect for Muslims, for Jews, for Orthodox Christians. Like all of us have to share these holy places, and and it, it's written with a, a very practical tone of respect for that.
1: I mean, there is a lot of Christians out there who literally think as Judaism plus all the bits about Jesus. Like there are a lot of Christians out there who see Judaism as like. Sort of goofy uncle who we have round for dinner sometimes, and he doesn't always think the way that we do, but he's still part of the family. Like, no, like these sorts of perspectives are dis- like Judaism is not pre Christianity; it is its own thing that is separate, and like they they need to like people need to understand this.
2: No, this these are two different world religions that share some commonalities. And like I said before, um, I don't know, this This may kind of piss you off a little bit, and that's okay if it does, but I'm going to stand by Christianity being based in Jewish traditions, specifically when I speak about uh, doctrines of redemption, because sacrificial redemption is a concept that's not exclusive to Christianity or Judaism or both. Uh, the idea that, you know, there there is such thing as sin and that's paid for by a sacrifice, like that's, that's universal. You can't just claim that for one religion. And, and I don't think it's appropriative for Christians to have what we call the Old Testament as a holy book when that's shared with another religion. You know, that's something that we need to we, we need to share with mutual respect, just like how Muslims and Christians and Jews all share certain holy places. These traditions have been built over thousands of years, and there is not there isn't such thing as untangling these traditions at this point. You know, you can argue all day about whether it would have been correct for the first Christians 2,000 years ago not to have anything to do with the Old Testament and just have their own holy book. Well, you can argue all day about whether that would have been ideal or not. But the fact is that we live in 2020 and uh, there's nothing that can be done about it now. So now we've just got to find a way to to deal with the the situation that does exist and, and figure out a way to coexist within that. You, you, I do definitely believe that it's a problem when you fetishize or appropriate someone else's culture. It would be inappropriate, just horrendously inappropriate to observe Ramadan as a Christian, to just take that religious practice and change it. You know, make up a part about Jesus fasting in the wilderness and just make that a Christian thing. Because if you're a Christian, that's not your practice. That does not belong to you. Uh, so. Like you said, if you have the honor of being invited to somebody else's Seder or to participate in another cultural or religious tradition, I think people should absolutely do it. It's so valuable to learn about other people's beliefs, and it's a wonderful thing to be invited into somebody else's life. But as Christians, and speaking to people who are listening who are also Christians, we don't own Seder. We <laughs> don't own mezuzahs. Like Those things don't belong to us. It's that they're not ours. There are other, like, there are things that are arguably appropriate, you know, like the first half of our of our holy book. You know, I don't, mm. I don't see a problem with Christians singing psalms in church. But these things are spe- so specifically, you know, especially coming from a religion that is based off another religion. For goodness' sake, you have don't we already? Like, haven't we already taken enough? Like, those, these, those don't belong to you. It's inappropriate to take those things for our own. And it's, and it's, it's twice as inappropriate to try to incorporate Jesus or messianic ideas into those things. Um, when that is specifically against Judaism where those things originated.
1: That was very well put. Um, and we have run very long, um, are, make sure to check out the Patreon because this is undoubtedly you are. This hearing, is the
2: longest episode we have ever recorded.
1: Undoubtedly. You are hearing a version that is heavily <laughs> edited and heavily trimmed down for broadcast. Um, but if you subscribe to our Patreon, you can hear the whole thing. Um,
2: you think that's it?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's Kay. it. That's where we're going to end it. Um, my once again uh this has been the leaving eden podcast uh thank you guys all for tuning in um you can find the leaving eden podcast on facebook on instagram on twitter on facebook and instagram it is leaving eden podcast on twitter it is at leaving eden pod you can join our facebook group and you can join our patreon uh those two things are going to be super fun um and uh, if you want to find me on social media, you can follow me at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. That is on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, Sadie, if you want to plug your social.
2: Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music and on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie.
1: And until next time, I hope you guys have a nice day. Bye-bye.